visit the Downtown Den, join us through our website, all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com. Stay in, stay safe, visit the Downtown Den. Well, I'm very pleased to be joined in the Downtown Den by an old friend of mine, Nick Dubois, was a former, he's a former member of parliament for Enfield North, uh, but done many things besides that, uh, which we're gonna cover now. Welcome to the downtown den, Nick. Good to join you in the den, Simon. Uh, in these lockdown times, I, I feel my whole house is a den, and here we are, going one further. So I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. Well, it's pleased to welcome. I'm pleased to welcome you. Let's start by talking about your time as a member of parliament. You got elected in 2010, uh, but you'd stood a couple of times before in that constituency, and you also stood up north in Staley Bridge. I was uh, Staley Bridge and Hyde. Yes, you um, you've been very kind. Actually, I'm afraid my my record of elections is pretty rubbish. You know, it's sort of like played five, won one, and lost four. If you include Staley Bridge and Hyde in 1997 and and that all came about because uh, look, I, I had a no intention of becoming an MP and I, I was probably about 40 uh, I'm trying to remember 40 odd years old 42 maybe 40 42 years old and um, I was vice chairman because I was always a conservative I was vice chairman in Huntingdon which was John Major's seat and he was prime minister and of course, you may remember that was not good times to be a conservative. And I was having a conversation with him when he was around our house for some function or other, which is what happens. And I think I was saying to him, look, come on, John, it's a bit of a shambles here. You've got your cabinet at each other's throats. If we were running a business, we wouldn't be doing it like this. You know, very friendly conversation. And he very bluntly said, you know what, Nick, you're probably right. But why don't you put up or shut up? This <laughs> was not an unreasonable thing to say. And then I think he did his very best to engineer. I ended up in a place called Stately Bridge and Hyde, which I had never heard of. Um, and, um, and of course, that was to wear a conservative rosette there on a good year was probably a bit questionable. To yeah. wear a conservative rosette in 1997 just made it, it turned into a target. So it was an early christening into politics. Now, I should warn you, Tom, Tom Pendry's a neighbour of mine down here in London, and... Uh, and, and, a, and a good friend. But what was it like fighting him? It was his fat last uh, last time, wasn't it? He, he'd give up after. I, I think it was because he was very disappointed ultimately. He, when Blair won, he expected, as he was, shadow uh, sports spokesman to go on and be um, uh, the, the minister for sport, which never happened. And Tom's a great enthusiast of uh, sport. I, and and that's, that's a genuine commitment he has. So he was very disappointed. But actually it was a bit strange because... Um, Tom and I, I, I obviously, you know, I'm glad we're friends, Simon, because I, I seem to struggle sometimes when I, my opponents, I never got on well with, and, and I can't quite understand why. But Tom said to me early on in the election, he said, do you know, he said, no one who stood against me in my years in Staley Bridge and Hyde has ever gone on to be a member of parliament, right? Oh. I, wow, that's interesting, and he was right. So... I may, may have lost, but I ultimately won a small victory against him. So when you see him, remind him of that and send him my best regards. Uh, I will indeed. And, and so you eventually land in Parliament 2010. Uh, t tell us what, obviously I know what it's like, but 
what was your experience of, of it? To, to tell our viewers. Well, if what... I can first briefly explain why I went into politics, because Please, I had yeah. started and run my own business, which was in the events and exhibition sector. And I literally started it from a credit card because in those days, and it was the, the late um, 80s, very early 90s, the banks were behaving pretty much as they are currently behaving, not as well as we would expect them to do. Yes. And uh, I tried to get a small firm's loan guarantee, which was very similar, funny enough, to the 80% uh, of a loan being guaranteed by the bank and 20% basically on your hoof, um, uh, onto you. And I got approval through a really hard working MP. I'd been initially rejected by the scheme and this local MP, uh, for southwest Cambridgeshire, where I lived at the time, he did a blinder of a job. And I thought, you know, all th th this is pretty good what this guy's done. He got me in front of the banks, he got me approved on the scheme, and then the banks basically turned around and said, Do you know what? And it was Midland Bank. Many of the people watching this probably go, Who? Well, it's HSBC now. Um, oh. And the bank said, We don't like these government agreements, so we're not going to support it. It's too much risk for us. Exactly the same nonsense we're hearing today. And I made a mental note that one day I'd like to get back into politics. I'd learned what an MP can do locally from this chap who helped me, a chap called Sir Anthony Grant, uh, many, many years ago. And um, I thought, I want to balance the rhetoric but that comes from politicians with the reality of having run a business. And my business went on to a reasonable size. It was an SME. Um, and I thought I could bring that experience to Parliament, which is, you know, it's better now, but it was still, it was lacking that sort of expertise. But of course, when I got there, this is the huge contrast that I, I, I find um, extraordinary, is anyone who's in a business here, whether they're running it or not, at some point they're making decisions, and those decisions get affected pretty quickly, they happen. And you are making decisions all the time, that is the very nature of being an executive. Some of those decisions are very trivial. Some are you know, hugely important. They affect the employees who work for you. The, the, you know, if your company's future is good, it's good for your employees, their families. You have huge responsibilities as a director. And I sort of, a bit naively looking back, Simon, went into parliament thinking that you know, I would be making important decisions and I would be uh, influencing life-changing things, which I suppose you do when you vote for something. But as you know, in most folks, you don't really have a choice because you're whipped through unless you stand up on a matter of principle. So, but I got there and after six months, I don't think I'd taken a significant decision at all. In fact, the only executive decision I really took outside of voting was what type of mobile phone to have that the whips were busy pressing on us. And I thought I had made the most horrific mistake of my life. I'd gone from making decisions and influencing things to being basically cannon fodder for the whips. Um, at the mercy of constituents who thought I had all this power to do things, when in fact you don't. You only have one thing and it is access to people who can make things happen. So it was, I, I mean, I, if, if Patrick McLaughlin People who don't know Patrick McLaughlin, he's a big ex-minor conservative from Derbyshire who was the chief whip. Scared the bloody hell out of you. It was, I mean, you always thought this guy could physically 
put you up against the wall and sort you out. Such were the rumours. And I thought, you know, I, if it had been anyone else, I might have gone to them and said, you know, I'm really quite disappointed about this. I'm not really sure whether I want to go on or not. But it never crossed my mind because Patrick McLaughlin would have just slapped me around and told me to grow up and man up. I say that pejoratively before anyone thinks that he was out there punching so, people. He was so quite frustrating, really, and I can understand that. Like you, I'd run, run a business before I entered uh, Parliament. Uh, and it is a frustration, isn't it? I, I, I share exactly your experience, actually. Well, uh, not to rub it in, but you obviously went, I think you went in in 2010 as well, didn't you, Sam? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you went into opposition. So actually, at least your constituents would probably think, well, poor chap, he's in opposition, he can't do much about it. They thought we were the government. They just thought if something was going wrong, we could sort this out. And actually, I think this is a really important thing um, to understand is I, I, I have this wish, and that's why I will talk to pretty much anyone um, about the subject. And I, and I wrote the book, which I know we'll touch on later. But understanding what our parliament does and understanding what our MPs can and can't do, I think it's actually an important educational thing because I think we'll, we'll use them better and people will understand better what to expect from the system. Let's face it, we've all done constituency surgeries and, and, and I challenge you, Simon, or you may choose discretion as the better part of that, but if anyone listening to this has ever met an MP and you say, how do you find the constituency work? They will tell you they love it, that this is really important because they can really affect people's lives and make changes, which is true. And on some really important issues, an MP can be a great ally and supporter. But the majority of stuff that comes through the door is utter, utter nonsense. It shouldn't be coming to an MP. It is, I want, my, I want, I want you to get the council to get me a new house. You know? I want you to clear, uh, clear up the streets of dog poo that are outside because the council aren't collecting things. Um, they will come in on issues you have no scope over. Immigration, they'll say, I want you to support my immigration application, which I had a lot of in my seat. Well, I can't support your immigration application. And by the way, I've never met you. So why on earth would you expect me to write a glowing reference? So, you know, these are things that are important. Don't get me wrong, but there's about 40 or 50 elected councillors to deal with the responsibilities they have. And we just become a glorified postal service that people come to us and we ask the council to do something. And, and that I blame the Liberal Democrats for, because um, uh, I apologise to anyone listening who's a Liberal Democrat, but as Liberals, they were going nowhere in politics in the, 70, in the 80s and 90s. And they introduced what they call pavement politics. So they would go around knocking on doors and saying, oh, your local Labour MP or your local Conservative MP, he's not doing anything about the pavements on your streets, is he? He's stuck in Westminster. How dare he? Voting on legislation and those sorts of issues. And that's how suddenly the expectations started to change. And all credit to the Liberals, it was a very effective electoral um, ploy that they introduced. But it has changed the nature of what we do. And I think we're less efficient for it. I, th I think that's a really interesting take on uh, on casework as well. And yes, uh, I had one or two councillors in Rochdale that actually referred their casework onto my office, <laughs> onto me. Go and see your MP. It was councillor-related casework, but they would refer Precisely. it to my office, yeah, to sort out, uh, which which I found a bit bizarre. But but you're exactly right. 
what did you enjoy about Parliament, though? And what, what did you feel that you achieved? What one or two topics that you found really interesting or really draw for? Yes. Um, look, being, being um, quite substantive for a moment, if I may, we are sent there to basically speak and represent on behalf of our constituents. Now, of course, that is what gives us the right to have to be heard by the cabinet, um, or even when you go outside of Parliament by chief of police, you can demand a meeting and you'll get it, all those sorts of things that most people couldn't get. But I think what was probably one of the most memorable incidents for me was, you may remember in uh, 2012, I think it was, uh, when the riots swept across Britain and this was um, really quite shocking for many of us. We were seeing Croydon burning, um, we saw that it start in Tottenham uh, and they spread very quickly causing huge damage. And in my opinion, they weren't necessary, necessarily about this um, person who'd been shot by the police that had sparked the riots. Uh, and I saw actively on the streets in Enfield when the riots came to us on this Sunday night, uh, they came up to, to Enfield. They were organized, people were using um, blackberries and, and phones to persuade people to go up and meet at Enfield for a good old riot. And I thought, I cannot sit back and watch this just from a distance. So I went down, because I was following social media as it was being advised that the riot would take place. It was clear it was happening. And I went down from about four o'clock in the afternoon and I stood in the town centre. I watched shopkeepers shut up their shops to protect them. I saw people gathering. I watched the police tactics, which, you know, I, I am not an armchair critic of the police, but we didn't quite get it right that night. Um, and I saw these people forming. And then I saw, um, as it progressed and the rioting did start to kick in, I was standing in the foyer of um, a, a shop where fortunately the owner was a huge bloke and uh, no one would threaten him. And these youngsters came by, one in particular, he could have been no more than 12 or 13, if that. And he had one of the hoodie masks on, the sort of face masks on, and he was carrying a bar. And I just looked at him and I said, where do you think you're going with that? I mean, what was I thinking? I was just being a bit foolish, really. And uh, he just looked at me and the police were no more than the other side of the road, a whole row of them, because they were holding back people. And he just took off his mask and he said, um, he said, our justice for Mark Duggan, which was the name of this individual. And I said, you haven't got a clue what that's about, are you? You're just here to trash my town, aren't you? And, and he looked at me and gave me the two fingers and all that sort of stuff. And he said, yeah, and no one's going to do anything about it either, are they? Including that lot. There was no sense of accountability. He knew what was right or wrong. And off he went and, and did his thing. And this went on for quite a while. And I finally, and I'll get to my point in a second, I was with residents in a street very close to the town. And a, a few of these thugs ran past us. They pushed a guy against his wall in his garden, did him some damage. I, they were pushing him out of the way and he fell, and he fell quite badly. And these, um, some of the people in Enfield wanted to take them on. And I, I kind of understood that, but I said, look, you want these guys to go, they're running to their cars, just let them go. You know, let's look after this guy. And as we were talking afterwards, they said to me, Nick, when you get to Parliament, you make sure David Cameron and his bloody cabinet 
know what happened here. And so it was extraordinary. We were recalled to Parliament that, that week after. And that is exactly what I did. I stood up and I was called early because I'd had riots. And I was able to tell Cameron exactly what I said. And for once, I knew I was speaking for every single person in that constituency. Now, I think that is amazing that in a parliament, and this would not happen in America, it would not happen anywhere else, uh, in my opinion, within a few days of something like this happened, all these residents who'd asked me to speak for them and make sure the prime minister heard it, the voice, he bloody well heard. And we got some action and we got some things sorted out. It was that, that to me, was one of the most powerful uses of, of Parliament that I'd ever used. That's a great illustration of where Parliament comes into its own, isn't it? And, you know, all parliamentarians, or certainly most, have a story like that to tell. You, you'd been on the front line of the riots, effectively. Yes. Uh, yeah, and, and, that, and, gave you, and that gave you a very strong insight into uh, what mm. was going on. And do you think Cam Cameron understood just unpacking that a little bit in terms of the riots, is the potential for these to keep recurring? They have, they have recurred over the years, haven't they? We were old enough to well, remember the previous ones. I remember the Brixton riots back in, in 1980. I, I think, the thing, the thing about it, that let me try and deal with both aspects of the question. I represented a seat called Enfield, which is a northern uh, London suburb, right on the M25. Uh, my seat was Enfield North. And the interesting thing about these riots was that it totally shook up David Cameron's view and others when they came to Enfield. They had this idea that Enfield was a leafy suburb, the sort of, you know, um, uh, Surbiton of North London, that it was uh, a safe conservative area in old fashioned speak, if you know what I mean. And of course it, it was far from that. In fact, in Enfield, the borough, we had three of not just London's most deprived boroughs, but the most deprived boroughs in Europe. And this was lost on the cabinet. They were still harking back to when it was like this wonderfully suburban area. So that was, that was hugely important. Um, and, um, and that made a change. And how did that matter? Why did that matter? Because things like we were getting poor allocations of funding for public health expenditure. And we now had a case and we could go back and say, look, you've seen what Enfield's like. It's not what you think it is. You've seen the health disparities. So in a poorest area, a place called Enfield Highway, compared to Winchmore Hill, which is a mile away, which is very affluent, there was an 11 year life expectancy difference. And we were able to ram these messages home on the backs of the riots. So that was a positive that came out of it. I worry slightly, and I choose my words really carefully here. Um, I worry slightly for the future because during this coronavirus, there is effectively a new social contract in place. And it's basically saying a couple of things. It's saying, look, um, you younger people, you, you know, a few weeks ago, you had every reason to have an optimistic, high employment, forward thinking economy and a, a relatively, relatively wealthy lifestyle ahead of you or the opportunity to develop um, a higher income, etc, etc. And the new social contract that's been kind of forced on us is look, younger people, we are putting everything on hold for you, basically, whilst we try and sort this out. And obviously, younger people um, uh, 
whilst not necessarily being the highest amongst the victims, are basically seeing that we are doing this to protect our rightly, our older, our more vulnerable people, broadly speaking. But ultimately, they're also seeing huge debts being piled up. They're seeing a completely different approach from a government that many would never have expected to ever do this, to get the state to intervene and help them. But there's going to be a long time for recovery. And we're basically saying to our younger generations, you know, we're asking you to accept this new social contract. Now, we have to be right on our game after this. We have to make sure now that there is a, a new type of politics that will work damn hard to make sure that we don't end up in, if you like, 10 years of, of uh, unnecessary, what I would call, I don't want to repeat the mistakes of austerity. I think we've got to be able to say now is the time we've now invested to save ourselves from this public health challenge. Uh, now we have to help rebuild this economy and it won't be on the backs of a younger generation. And if we get that right, and we support them in all sorts of ways, financial and non-financial, I don't think we will see the threat of social disorder. But we've got to move swiftly. Conservative government has got to change. I think Boris Johnson's probably got that message. But, you know, that, that would be something I'd be looking out for. That's really interesting, Nick. And I, I agree with that completely, actually. Let, let's move on to a, a slightly lighter note. Confessions of a Recovering MP by Nick Dubois, your book. I want you to tell us a bit about this. It's had rave reviews. It's in the top 10 of uh, political biographies. Uh, yeah. It's got rave reviews from the Mail on Sunday. What, what are the highlights? <laughs> tell us, uh, viewers, what the highlights are. Why should we read well, it? Well, really, I, let, let me explain why I wrote it. Um, immediately after I, uh, I um, lost the 2015 election by 900 votes, I was pretty hacked off, right? I kind of knew it was going to happen, but when it hits you in the face, you think, oh, that's not so good. So I, I thought, how am I going to deal with this? Because I didn't have a job. I didn't go back to my business. That's, that's, that's fair enough. I, I thought it'd be wrong just to waltz back in and say, hi, guys, I'm back. Um, so I sat down, I wrote about six chapters and I thought, oh, that was okay. And I thought nothing of it. And I got on and moved on my life with my life. And then in 2017, I got very involved and my arm was twisted by Conservative Central Office to go back and fight Enfield North in 2017 in Theresa May's uh, unfortunate election. And I had wanted to get back into Parliament. It wasn't my priority. But when this appeared, I thought this is okay. But I had no intention of fighting Enfield North again because, look, being brutal, I think they'd said no to me a few times um, and I thought it was time for someone fresh to have that seat. And I was going to look for a better seat, better politically. You know, the sort of majorities you guys have up in, in Rochdale, for example, at the time in 2010. That's why I thought it would be slightly nicer having fought these marginal seats. Anyway, all went to hell. The worst election, basically... They invested everything in Theresa May being superwoman, and uh, the minute that proved not to be the case, it all collapsed. Um, so I lost, and I was really grumpy now. So I thought I'd go and recover in my uh, new home I'd bought in Spain, ready, getting ready for for my um, retirement and enjoyment, family life. Something lovely, and I sat down, and I I sent these chapters off to Bite Back Publishing, a chap called Ian Dale, who you will know. And he came back and said, write it. It's great. So in four months, I bashed it out. And its objective is, it's not a political book. It's about our politics. But without it being 
um, uh, pro-labor, pro-conservative, any of that. It takes you on a journey as a backbencher who, whatever you think you're going to do when you go into parliament, you totally forget that your constituents, uh, your own government, generally through the whips, the parliamentary system itself, um, are all going to conspire against you to actually make whatever you thought you were going to do a distant reality. And it talks about how you have to, first of all, adjust to that. And then how I sat back one day after that six month period I talked about when I was thinking, what am I doing here? I thought, hang on, stop wallowing in self misery. People have been coming in and out of this place for centuries and they've made it work for them. So make it work for yourself. And I, I then tell the story of how I managed to change legislation on knife crime, which was happening awfully in my constituency. Youngsters getting stabbed all the time. Uh, I told the story how basically uh, through gerrymandering the system in parliament, I managed to get a crop, I managed to force the government's hand to change the law on something. And uh, it was bizarre things like, I go through all the processes, the civil service do their best to stop you. The ministers are like Ken Clark, right? He didn't want to do what I was proposing, which I, I won't talk about in any detail because that will get too boring. So uh, I, I talk about how I trapped him in a public select committee meeting where he didn't know I was sitting right behind him. And the chairman of the Home Affairs Committee at the time was sympathetic to my proposal on knife crime sentencing, which was what it was all about. It was Keith Faz. And he asked him the question um, about, well, you know, are you going to support this amendment that's going through uh, from, from Nick Dubois? And uh, he went, well, as you do it, so rather than just say no, which is what I'd been told a few days beforehand that they weren't going to support it. He went, well, the, you know, we're still, we're still looking at it, but we're considering it, the door is not closed. And I thought, huh, he's just said that. And he doesn't know I'm right behind him. So the minute it ended, I grabbed his shoulders. You know, Ken Clark's a big guy. And I wouldn't let him go anywhere. And it was really bad form to do this. And I sort of said, Ken, I'm so delighted to hear the door isn't shut on this one. I said, this is fantastic. Can I come and meet with you? And, you know, he was like, I've been snookered here. Yeah. Um, but basically, until the Sun got involved, the Sun newspaper, that is, I didn't stand much chance. And um, when it was finally approved by David Cameron and Ken Clark, they came to an agreement to support it in the end. It wasn't either of them that told me. It wasn't a civil servant. It wasn't their PPS. I got a call from Tom Newton Dunn at the Sun and said, well done, it's becoming law, Nick. Can we have a quote, please? That's backbench politics. You, you learn to use the, the weapons at your disposal, the press, parliamentary questions. If you're prepared to ask awkward questions, you can get things done. Ministers don't want to be embarrassed. Um, if you use these arcane rules, like the 10 minute rule bill, that you know, no sane person would ever bother finding out what it is, but you can use it to your advantage. You can surprisingly get things done. And I talk, talk it through that journey in a very sort of anecdotal way. Um, pointing to as many of my weaknesses as many other things and uh, and how I emerged from it five years later where I do have a bit of a moan and, and that's a moan at the Conservative Party which so if you are Labour inclined you'll quite enjoy that last chapter. 
Well, it's very, very well regarded book. And but let me, you didn't retire to Spain, did you? I wanted to move on to uh, your time as uh, Chief of Staff to Dominic Raab and everything that you did around Brexit. You were in the negotiations there, uh, part of that. I mean, so it's, until the pandemic occurred, it was a massive part of British life for many years. Uh, so you were Chief of Staff to the Secretary of State for exiting Europe. Tell us a bit about that role and, and what, what you experienced, Nick. Well, it did start in Spain because um, that summer, just before David Davis resigned, he was the Secretary of State and, and he and Boris Johnson, if people remember, resigned uh, in 2018 uh, in the summer when the so-called Chequers deal, long gone from people's memory, but this was the, the withdrawal agreement proposal uh, by Theresa May uh, that was sort of uh, not very popular, I think is the way I said. And I was sitting by the pool in Spain when I sent a message to Dominic Raab, who I knew, and I said, he'd just been appointed. And I said, good luck with that one then, sort of thing, you know, pal. Um, and uh, I got on a message back immediately and I thought, there is no way a brand new Secretary of State sends you a message immediately uh, unless something's up. And sure enough, he said, I'll call you later. And I thought, yeah, okay. And he rang me up. And he said, would you like to come along and join as chief of staff? And I had no idea what the job entailed. Uh, and it's basically the special advisor's job. It is a, you're not a civil servant, you're not an elected representative, but you are as close to the Secretary of State as anyone can be. You have his ear, you can almost control who he sees, does and what, depending on that type of Secretary of State. Um, and it meant I moved into number nine Downing Street, as close as I got, one, one number away, but spent a lot of time in 10 Downing Street because we were this inner circle, if you like, uh, of uh, a senior civil servant called Ollie Robbins, the cabinet secretary, the prime minister, her chief of staff, myself and Dominic, and then others would come and go uh, as we please. And we were effectively the Europe uh, meeting, uh, which meant uh, all of our negotiations would come back and be discussed at that table. That involved going to Brussels. In fact, can you believe this, Simon? It's a, it's, it's a very strange thing. I think I joined on the 18th of July from memory, uh, uh, but I didn't even have time to go to the office to get my pass because that day I met everyone for the first time and caught up with Dom for the first time at Waterloo, um, uh, sorry, at King's Cross Station because we were going for our first meeting with Michel Barnier and the team. So I had no security clearance. Uh, I had no papers uh, because I can't have any papers if I haven't got my security clearance. I went to this first meeting <laughs> armed with only a suntan uh, and sat through it and said, as you can imagine, sweet sod all in the first meeting because I was literally catching up on what was going on. But it proved to be a point in history, whatever people think of the outcome, a point in history that, you know, I will never forget. It was very significant. And it took me into government as opposed to being a backbencher. And I was able to see things from both ways. You know, a lot of it, looking back, I think it was inevitable that um, uh, Dominic, who's now Foreign Secretary, would resign because um, we, uh, we wanted to land the Prime Minister in a place where we could get the withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons. And listeners will remember, it never got a majority in the House of Commons 
um, it, it, it was completely, um, uh, completely frayed with big majorities against it. And essentially Dominic knew this. I mean, I knew it, but he was the boss. Uh, and so we, would, we were exploring ways of trying to land the prime minister in a place and the European Union where we had a chance of getting it through. And, and to this day, I still think there was potentially one lost opportunity. People may not remember this, but the backstop was the big issue. The so-called guarantee for uh, Northern Ireland which would effectively mean that the whole UK, including Northern Ireland, would remain in a customs union unless the EU said we could leave because they were satisfied with whatever arrangements were ultimately put in place to allow trade to go across the um, uh, north-south border and the, uh, uh, to, to, to allow, if you like, no interference with the standards required by the single market. And that was an intolerable situation. Parliament said, we can't sign up to this. It's just ludicrous. You're, you're basically signing us up to be at the mercy of a third country to determine what we do with our domestic policy. You couldn't do that. No, no, no peacetime treaty has ever been signed like that. But in one meeting in Brussels, um, Dominic asked all the right questions. Uh, and Barnier himself acknowledged that there would have to be a time limit. He understood the British position for a time limit on the backstop. And we reported that back. We felt this was a door worth pushing at because that could have got it through Parliament. Whether, whether, whether people wanted it or not, you know, generally at the end of the day, whatever it is, is irrelevant. And um, basically, how can I put it? The powers that be decided they didn't want to pursue this, uh, which I think was a grave mistake. There you go. So inevitably, uh, when the final document was published, uh, it was not tenable for Dominic to accept it. So we were, we knew this when he went into that cabinet meeting. The cabinet meeting that was there to agree this document uh, was all set up uh, for, they thought, you know, we would all go out to Brussels that night, we'd shake hands, sign the document, everything would be wonderful. Of course, we knew otherwise. Um, and it was a little bit yes minister. I was in Dominic's office whilst he was in the cabinet. And if you're in number nine Downing Street, you look down, you see all the press, you see the front door of Downing Street, you know the cabinet meetings going on in there. I knew exactly what his position would be on this, not unreasonable. Um, and um, and uh, sure enough, when, um, when Theresa May came out and uh, basically announced that the cabinet had supported the deal as it was, uh, which incidentally included a clause in there that had not even been run past the Secretary of State for exiting the Union. It was always going to be a matter of principle for Dom and great disappointment that he couldn't see it through uh, and resigned. So I was actually out of a job after 123 days and tried to pick things up from there, which is what took me into more broadcasting and things like that. Fascinating time there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and fast forwarding on that topic now, uh, I mean, Boris played a blinder, really, didn't he, in terms of taking over and going straight for it once and for all, put it to the electorate, effectively. Uh, we're then heading for the exit, and lo and behold, we end up with a pandemic. Where, where, where's Brexit at this moment in time? You've made some commentary recently in the yeah. Times or the Sunday Times. 
where do you think we're at? Are we still heading for the exit or will things slow down? Well, look, the, the reality is we have left the European Union. Uh, the withdrawal agreement is the divorce, if you like. Um, the trade agreement is the sort of sunny uplands. What can we agree about our future relationship with the EU? And we should be out there negotiating trade agreements with all sorts of people, not least America, which is the prize uh, agreement to get. Um, now, uh, COVID has come along. It's understandably the priority and rightly the priority. They are behind on the schedule of the talks for the trade agreement. They are trying to do them, uh, obviously, as we are doing this interview now. And the government are adamant that they will stick to the one-year timeline, which effectively means we have an agreement or not by the end of this year. So if you like, we're back to that scenario. If we don't get an agreement, all the talk is about no deal, which, by the way, is, is misleading because there are lots of mini deals out there uh, how we would continue to trade. But the bottom line is we wouldn't have uh, a basic free trade agreement, which is what the UK wants. Now, I actually kind of surprised a few people because I am this staunch Brexiteer uh, who believe passionately we were right to set a one-year deadline because otherwise it just goes on forever for these talks. But I think the problem we've got now is that these talks have to be put to member states of the European Union. Any agreement that comes out of these talks by October for those parliaments, all of them, the member state parliaments and some regional parts, to approve the deal. Which means effectively your timeline is the summer to have a deal in place. Now, we may get that, we may not. The one thing though, that is out of the control of all the negotiators is the fact that business is on its knees. It is on life support system as we speak. I know that even from my own business, which is in the event sector. Um, and you know, tr free trade agreements are about loosening of supply chains, looking around, the world, uh, looking for new opportunities um, going forward. Well, so many of our businesses, domestic and exporting businesses, and remember, Britain wants twice as many exporters as it's got at the moment. So they've got a job to do to get out there and find those new customers, feed those supply chains, etc., etc. We don't even know if those supply chains are going to exist. There's so much change going on. We don't know when we'll be able to get on planes to fly and do business. So at the very least, we need an extension for an implementation period um, just to give business a chance to breathe, settle, rebuild itself and move forward. Uh, that to me is why I think an extension is actually more acceptable now, more so than it's ever been. That is a minority view as far as I'm aware, certain, certainly public, but I thought it was worth saying at the time based on my experience of both business and my time at Dexu. Thanks for that, Nick. And, and that segues nicely into our final uh, discussion about business. You, you'd set up Rapier Group, as you already mentioned, uh, events management. What, what's, what's your take on, on that? You'd allude into that, but it's pretty tough out there, isn't it? Yes, basically, we're talking about meetings, events, exhibitions, um, companies organising their own events, 
bringing people together from around the world or just within the UK. You know, car manufacturers bring all their dealers together. Um, uh, inst financial institutions hold big, fin uh, big financial exhibitions, bringing the world's bankers together. It doesn't matter what it is, loads of this going on. It's also referred to as business tourism because it brings visitors into countries that are hosting these events. Now, all of those were cancelled overnight because if you can't travel and you can't group in more than two or three people, there are no meetings. So furlough came along, which is a really, you know, I think financially the government have got a few huge grip on the economics of what's going on at the moment. And they've taken some very good measures on the whole. Of course, it's not perfect. Um, and, and that's giving people time to take stock, keep their staff on, not let the, lose their skills. The problem is with the event sector is that uh, they may be the first to lose all the business, but they're going to be almost the last to get it back. People are going to have to look at It's a cyclical nature. So if something's been cancelled this year, it may not happen again for another two years. People who are going to now try and find venues are going to find a crowded marketplace when they come out of COVID. And actually, some of those venues are still going to be hospitals. Excel, which is um, one of many around the country, uh, is the largest conference and exhibition center, which incidentally, the exhibition industry, often unnoticed, made a major contribution to getting that Nightingale Hospital built, along with the army and the NHS. They haven't got the venues to operate in. So the fear is now, that the government might loosen lockdown, as we all know the arguments raging about that. They might see the retail economy stimulating um, and they might read too much into this and take away a lot of the measures that are supporting business to business activities, not least the exhibition events industry. And then that's it. We will lose that skills and that sector overnight because companies are looking and saying, these are the reserves I built up over the last few years. They're not taking dividends. Uh, they've rode back in. Directors have taken all the pay cuts because at the moment, they, they're not sure, but they're hoping to be able to see a way out soon. And so at the moment, it's hold tight, sit tight. They've got government support. But what, what directors, maybe people over 50 particularly, who are going to look at their reserves and say, I don't know when this is going to end. Uh, government restrictions have now gone. And actually, I could still be with no business for a year you're probably going to be tempted to take your reserves and close the business down. That's precisely what the economy does not need to happen. And it's my fear that might happen. And by the way, I'm talking about events and exhibitions, but I'm sure there's other players who find themselves in this situation where they're first to lose the business and probably last to see it recover. Mm, and that, that has a knock-on effect for other sectors, whether it's hospitality, uh, other supply chain businesses as well connected. And, and then totally. we increases in unemployment and it could potentially snowball. That's the risk, isn't it? It's, it's huge. And, and actually, one of the frustrations for the uh, business events um, tourism, if you like, is that the conversation is all about hospitality. That's pubs, restaurants they're talking about mainly. Um, and, uh, and actually, the business events, business exhibitions, which is leisure tourism as well. I mean, uh, sorry, business tourism, which is huge. You know, it contributes 45 billion to the UK economy. It has 25,000 businesses in it, in it and over half a million employees. Many of them, all of them virtually, SMEs. This is, this is huge. Um, 
they're just feeling their voice is not getting heard, despite the efforts of some of the trade associations. Uh, its biggest problem is it's very fragmented. It's got self-employed, it's got small agencies, it's got larger agencies. It's either um, from people on the shop floor, from the electricians, through the carpenters, through to the intellectually creative talent at the other end of it, producers, hall owners, very fragmented sector. And if you're fragmented, it's very hard to speak with one voice. And that, that might be one of the problems they've got in getting their message over. That's really interesting. Can I say thank you very much for joining us in the downtown den. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, nice you. to chat for so long uh, once again. And all success for the future. As, um, you do lots of radio now and uh, obviously doing business and many other things. But uh, continue with that and keep in touch with us as well. I will do indeed, Simon. Thank you. And thank you to all who are listening.